All right, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the Oil and Gas Podcast. Today is Friday, May 24th. Uh, with your host, myself, Glenn Parrott, and I'm joined with my co-host, Aaron Vandeford. Mr. Vandeford, good morning. Hey, good morning. So, um, boy, from Denver here, finally, beautiful weather. Good grief. <laughs> given the, we can say that today, given yesterday and the day before. Crazy week. So, let's see. Speaking of the week, news. Uh, any sort of highlights and takeaways, I guess, headlines? Um, if, you, uh, if you're following... Intercom's Oil and Gas 360, dub, 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 oilandgas360.com. Let me see some of these headlines here. Diamondback Energy, uh, their subsidiary, Rattler Midstream, um, raised, I guess, $665 million in its IPO this last Wednesday. Uh, Details around that looks like 38 million shares offered at $17.5 per unit. Largest offering in the energy sector, uh, IPO, that is, of 2019 to date. Which is pretty cool. I mean, well, that we're starting to see some IPOs. Uh, so we saw Brigham Minerals. Mm-hmm. And so some of these very specific tailored uh, energy companies able to receive capital. Uh, and I think, you know, as we're looking towards the rest of 2019, we may see some other minerals guys start to come out and do some IPOs. And so that may get some gears going a little bit. We'll see. Yeah. But yeah, good for them. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Locally, the uh, Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission uh, published updates uh, to their list of conditions called, quote, the director's objective criteria. So good news is in that first rulemaking hearing, the commission did not put a, a blanket moratorium on permitting activity, which is a general win, overall good. Yeah. Not the dire straits everyone was predicting but still more to come yeah definitely more to come and you know there's a lot of money to be had in oil and gas and so when you make that decision to stop what are you gonna do what are you gonna do so you know i, I it's good to see someone has some senses i want to get some folks in here and talk about that uh, yeah. on a different uh, podcast uh, locally there's uh, some 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 really strong leaders here that i think that you know it'd be good to get their opinion so more to come hopefully uh, let's see, on the activist front, um, activist activity, I guess making things a little frothy, as it were. Let's see, um, potential bidder for QEP, uh, proxy statements uh, between PDC and Kimmeridge. I guess PDC is now set for this proxy showdown upcoming on 529. So next week. Next week, yeah. Uh, it's a fight over, it looks like, three board seats. Um, we'll see what happens there. It's certainly a focus and emphasis on um, cost reductions being pressed through by the investors. Let's see. I guess there was also a, a letter from the Rice Guys to EQT. I actually didn't get a chance to review that. I don't know if you have any color or context around that. No, but it, it, it it's more along the same lines of uh, what the Rice Guys have been pushing <laughs> all along. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's interesting and, and certainly – you know, as we kind of go through and think about alignment and, and activists, really making sure that you're aligned with the folks that you're talking to, whether it's your investors or who you buy assets from and take <laughs> shares. But um, these are all all three very interesting cases to to kind of continue to watch. We've been looking at the QEP one for a little bit, and you know, the activist said, "Hey, I'll take you private, but hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah. maybe there's a buyer now." And 
Um, you know, ultimately we're all trying to do the, the same thing, but we have different ways of going about it and making sure there's alignment is, is one of those keys. But, uh, yeah, we'll keep, we'll keep watching this. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, there's more activity this week. Pioneer. This is, this is one that, that kind of came onto my radar and, and, uh, Pioneer announced that they were going to lay off uh, 230 employees on Tuesday. Wow. And, you know, this comes after it's all in a goal to what they've said, cut $100 million of its overhead. Right. And this came after eliminating uh, about 300 folks on on earlier buyout decisions that were deemed, uh, and I, I were mean, you the air quotes here, is generous. Were you surprised to see that announcement there of this uh, additional... I mean, 230 people being laid off. It, I mean, it's substantial. It's 25%. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's, it's meaningful. And so I think uh, as we kind of had a discussion uh, with Kevin on, on talking about board and cost and, and even the discussion we just had with PDC, G&A and, and overhead and anything that we can do to, to make sure that we're mindful of costs is at the forefront of all of these teams' uh, considerations. And so I will... I will venture that there will probably be more uh, layoffs in the industry uh, to come. Devin? Yeah, so uh, Devin in March, you know, confirmed that they are laying off a couple hundred folks uh, as they kind of went through an M&A transaction. And and so M&A is one of those areas, you know, Occidental and Anadarko. There's some redundancies behind here, and and Resolute was one that, that really kind of came to the front and said, you know, through that transaction, transaction, I don't believe any Resolute guys made it onto the, the payrolls. Um, yeah, Cimarox was pretty blunt about that. Yeah, they were. Um, <laughs> thanks. And, no thanks. <laughs> you know, I, I think there's great people that were over at Resolute. Um, but when you already have folks in, in place and you have a culture already built, this M&A and this culture coming together can be actually more troublesome than it may be worth. And so there may be some folks that then end up coming over, but when you have someone that can handle the the workload uh, and it's additive to what you're already doing, there's there's opportunities to cut. And that's one of the reasons why you're doing M&A. All right, any predictions from on the Anadarko side? I would suspect yes, but I don't know. I, I So I'll go out there and I, I don't think I'll make the Denver folks happy, uh, but I, I find it hard to believe that that Oxy would keep a Denver office. Yeah, exactly. Nobody wants anything, you know, overly negative, especially to the people who are listening in. But, you know, does it make sense? I mean, there's going to be overlap. Yeah, there's going to be some overlap. And, and you know, it all depends on what Anadarko or Occidental thinks about these DJ assets. I mean, it's a right. tremendous asset. And so if they're able to sell it off to someone who, who doesn't necessarily have a team in place, then everyone's probably pretty happy. If that's um, what they want to do, we you know, don't that, know. We don't know anything <laughs> on that front. Uh, but that said, you know, it. You know, I I would I would think that the uh, the Denver office gets smaller. Okay, so let's move along. Let's let's kind of go towards really thematically what this podcast is going to be today, which is more uh, a discussion around what we're, you know, sort of calling alphabet soup, the ESG, SRI, CSR, 
uh, that whole dialogue, I got all these, these letters out there. What does it really mean? So, so it's a bit of a talk around responsible investing, generally widely understood as the integration of environmental, social, and governance factors into investment processes and decision-making. So what are these factors? And so generally they cover the spectrum of issues that traditionally are not part of financial analysis yet have financial relevance. No, it's interesting. So we take this this world that, particularly in oil and gas, that we're so focused on the tangible, the fundamentals, the things that I can count. That's totally whether it. it's reserves or <laughs> PV10 or OPEX GNA per per barrel. All of the, all of these metrics that that have you know through our five factor model, we can we can prove have a tremendous um, correlation to valuation. And now we're adding something in there that at at this point is a little bit less tangible, but we're Folks are trying to find this area. To yeah, they're being asked to. It. Companies are being asked to respond to climate change. Um, how good are they with things, you know, anywhere from water management to the effectiveness of their health and safety policies to the protection against accidents? How do they manage their supply chains? How do they treat their workers? You know, whether they have a, a corporate culture that sort of builds trust and innovation. So. My factoid for you this morning is uh, that the term ESG, which I didn't really realize, I guess was coined back in 2005. So 14 years ago in a study called Who Cares Wins by Ivo Knopfel. Uh, It was born, I guess, out of this UN initiative where the report made the case that embedding these environmental, social, and governance factors into the capital markets makes good business sense. And leads to more sustainable markets and better outcomes for society, for society, et cetera. You know, it's this sort of lofty goal, which is great. But back then, you know, these institutional investors, let's just say were reticent or reluctant to really sort of embrace this concept. They're like, yeah, 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 okay, that, that's great. You know, the argument went along the lines that their fiduciary duty at the time really was limited to, hey, we just maximize shareholder value irrespective of environmental or social impacts or broader governance issues like corruption. But since then, in the intervening years, the tide has really shifted to where ESG integration is increasingly seen as part of their fiduciary duty. And it's really, in my mind, sort of accelerated since, what, 2013, 2014? Um, I get this, this, this feeling that, you know, and I have nothing to base this on other than my own personally, I've sort of thought around, you know, this explosion of social media and messaging on out there and it's becoming more and more, I hate saying this, messaging of, you know, your social um, care. Yeah. And we'll kind of get into to the conversation of how we're working with our clients and, and uh, the idea that this is really a cost of capital issue. But it ultimately, in my my estimation, this is a cost of capital issue for the investor, the institutional investor who's trying to raise capital and find ways to differentiate themselves and find other limited partners out there. Yeah. And if they can say, hey, this is a part of what we're doing, there, there are additional piles of money out there. And it's an easy box to check for, for some of these guys. And I'm not saying it, it's not a lofty or worthy goal, no, no. but sometimes it's a box to check to to give you a little bit of a differentiation and, and access to additional capital. Well, when 
when ESG investing comprises 20 million assets under management, or basically a quarter of all professionally managed assets around the world, um, yeah, you have to pay attention to quote unquote socially responsible investment um, and uh, and the implications. Yeah, all right. So it's a big pile of money. It's a big Benjamin pile, <laughs> twenty trillion. Um, yeah. So so I guess let's kind of get into you know because we're asked this question sort of what's the difference? What is ESG versus CSR? Um, how does that you know play in? What is SRI? SRI being socially social socially responsible uh, investment. So ESG really focuses uh, on, and what we're message, what we say is that it focuses on performance indicators that are sustainable, ethical, uh, and governance issues like managing a company's carbon footprint or making sure there are systems in place to assure accountability. And then CSR really being, uh, from a company's perspective, their, so, their self-regulation, ensuring that their actions have a positive impact on the environment uh, their consumers, their employees, their communities in which they work, and the overall public space. So in my mind, really a subset of you, if you will, of, of ESG. And where ESG meets CSR is in the need to think long-term. And, and, and I actually think this is a challenge for CEOs to balance out. Because on the one hand, you've got this sort of long-term thinking and strategy. But on the other hand, you've got this dichotomy of investors saying that they increasingly demand companies have proof of corporate social responsibility, but they arguably want faster quarterly results to, to reward. Right. So, you know, at a time when your typical CEO is what, on average, I guess, I think, I believe it's around four years, and you've got asset managers who are rewarding faster returns, you know, that long-term thinking, it's, it's, it's a challenge for, I think, some firms that they're, they're coming to grips with, but it can be seen as a luxury, albeit yeah. necessary. Yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, I think these are a lot of things that, that management teams, uh, in my experience, are, are thinking about and wrestling with and, and, and incorporating in their everyday life. Uh, but now they're being asked to, hey, make sure you show us the, the external investor or, or even in our backyard with, with 112 and, and the political side of things that we kind of touched upon, you know, these become constituents on these issues as well. And so it's, it's a education process of, of making sure that you're putting information out too. Um, when we are asked to prioritize ESG, so environmental or social or governments, how would you rank, and I, I know the answer on this one, but for our, the audience, how how would you rank the individual parts or components, uh, not in order of importance, but perhaps, well, importance and emphasis, and why? Yeah. No, it's a good question, and it's one that I, you know, I wrestle with a little bit. Because um, in my, I'm sorry, but I, no, to jump in, but I would say that it would be, uh at first, and and I'm not saying the most important, but the least, and don't get me wrong, but social and then environmental and then governance. So kind of flip around the E and the S 
So I guess starting with social or the, or the people part in my mind. No, and sorry, you were saying. No, and, and so look, the people part is is incredibly important. Um, and and we've all seen companies, particularly in these M&A structures where culture and, and the things that you put in place can can make or break a company in the way that it goes forward. And, and you know, but with the exception of from the outside view, uh, some a few voices pu- pushing towards diversity on whether it be boards or inside of companies, uh, you know that that generally becomes an internal issue. There's not a whole lot of external pressures, and so the way I'm looking at it, and and what a lot of folks are are thinking about uh, in our consulting practice is this idea of ESG being a a cost of capital issue. And so this environmental gets gets elevated, uh, particularly in oil and gas, because we're being asked more and more to to explain and and quantify what we are doing to to ensure that we're being good stewards of the environment and being responsible in the way that we're developing oil and gas. And so this this E is becoming pretty pretty darn important uh, on the external front, and it's one that we probably struggle with. Um, the most, or we're probably a little bit further behind on making sure we're letting people know all the things that we're doing here in the oil and gas space. I, uh, I have a note here. I was taking a look at it. was on the, on that environment and we're just going touching base a little bit back on taking a step back. I didn't mean to imply that the social end of it was, um, less important. It just, it seems to be the easiest one that companies can address, right? Sure. So you kind of talk about diversity and having companies say, Hey, I want, women on boards. Um, by and large, I don't think anybody's against that. I don't, you know, that's a, and uh, I don't want to say it's a layup, but it's, it's one that the boards are, yeah, we can handle that. Give us a good quality candidate. And yeah, they're on. Well, I have absolutely. not heard anybody say, oh, no, no, no. We don't want any women on our boards. <laughs> I haven't heard that. But it, I guess no, what I, I'm getting at is that it's stuff that it's tangible. They can sort of tackle without, you know, um, too much difficulty. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Those are those are easy things. And I think that, you know, from a board perspective and kind of revisiting some of what we talked about, I think it was our second or third podcast uh, with Kevin. You know, the the board is really there to help make management one think and be a great sounding board for ideas and really get this constructive. It it really has do I have the right people, male, female, whatever. Right. Uh, to be able to help me manage this business the best. And I, I, I think management teams today uh, in this fairly complex kind of environment is looking for anyone and everyone that can help them. Yeah, uh, exactly. That, that's exactly. really where things have settled out on that, in yeah. my opinion. Oh, no, absolutely. And there's no reason not to. You know, use the best resources you can. And on the, I, I was kind of going back to the environmental section. I guess I was going to build off of what you were talking about where – these large investors, like in, in this event, BlackRock, right, world's largest asset manager, um, said that, if, in fact, the quote here specifically is, investors who are not thinking about climate-related risks or who view them as issues far off in the future may need to recalibrate their expectations. So this message came out of their Investment Institute and their Global Insights report. And in short, they're stepping up calls for companies to describe how climate change affects their business. So it's important. And 
ultimately, though, I, I, I wouldn't. I would argue that it's the emphasis what we're hearing, even though social is important, environmental is important. Governance seems to be really the focus, where people are like, "Hey, these are things that we really want to focus on on, on the governance side." It's where most of the conversation seems to be taking place, and. And if governance is at the forefront on companies' minds, sort of dominating their concerns, you know, it, the, the, the mix are things that they can tackle that they know. Um, they know that they've got to work, you know, have a dialogue around risk and compensation and cyber. And these are things that they can really action immediately. They're not ephemeral, right? You know, they, they understand it and they can make strides towards addressing. Yeah, and uh, compensation is always one of those fun ones to kind of uh, look at, especially on the management side. And it, it's who been, doesn't like looking or talking uh, about compensation. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it's been really interesting to see how, you know, these KPIs, these key performance indicators have changed in recent years um, based on these discussions of what's going on on the governance front as, as the investor base is asking for a little bit different. And so the boards have to be asking and rewarding uh, management and employees differently. And so the returns and cash flow type metrics have taken the place from growth. And, you know, EOG was one of the first to change their proxy and and propose some of these other metrics. And, and you know, it's never easy to be first, but, you know, making sure that you're flexible enough to go do that. And and so those are some of the things that, that's that transparency of saying, hey, we're, we're making sure that we're all in alignment here. Would you say that the, that, good governance is going to be a protection or a shield. And I, it's fairly broad open, but with this age of the activist investor, do you think companies or management teams are scrambling a little bit just to make sure they've got a rock solid set of governance, uh, you know, on the ESG component that their G is really solid? No, I, I, I do. Um, there's no a lot of factors to, to why an activist would get involved, but, Look from a messaging standpoint and, and transparency and, and alignment. The more that you can have great governance, keeps you out of the crosshairs there, and, and the more that you can, you know, have transparency in what you're doing, and and get buy-in by a large uh, group, and you follow through and execute on it. It's not just a, a promise, right? You don't give a lot of ammunition for an activist to come in and say, "Well, I'm going to fix this." So, now, if your assets are underperforming and you're doing these other things, sure, there's there's other areas where an activist can come in, but governance is a great place to let's just get this taken care well, of. Or, or you know, you have a a board member and and one of your guys becomes activist. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, so PDC may have three three new board members on there, right? <laughs> yeah, you've got a uh, you know, as you said in the past. And our consulting services find alignment quickly. Yeah, and and so that alignment and focus, I I think that's really important because at the end of the day, uh, and and when we've done activist consulting and and dealt with this type of um, work, we're all here for the same purpose, really to to generate, uh, you know, a good return for our shareholders, and there's lots of ways to go around it, and a good healthy dialogue on a board can be constructive as long as we all remember at the end of the day, what are we really here trying to do? 
and knowing that we have to move this process forward. And so, you know, when you have an activist come on your board, they may have an idea. Don't be totally receptive or unreceptive <laughs> to it. Don't be receptive to yeah. it. Now, uh, you know, listen and educate. And more often than not, from what I've seen is once you kind of open up to this new party that may not have all the information going into this, they kind of understand why things are being done. And so uh, finding that al that alignment and focus quickly is, is certainly helpful. And, you know, even that's beyond just activist consulting. Uh, if you take a step back to the whole e ESG, I mean, it's that's really it, right? On your overall ESG strategy is own your message. Own your message. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's actually... Uh, this ESG world from an investor relations standpoint is taking a little bit of a, it's providing some other avenues to talk to folks as we, as we see a change in, in the makeup of these investor bases. So as we get more index funds and, and ETFs, they're generally passive investment styles. There's no real way to talk to those folks, but they are voting on your shares. They have right. a vote in your business, but how do we talk to them? And so the, the age of this, corporate governance roadshow uh, hmm. is here. And so there's there's management teams and, and legal counsels going out and having discussions with compliance folks at these uh, different firms to be able to make sure that they're educating and, and giving folks good information on what they're doing from their governance standpoint, which opens up a new dialogue that we haven't had before. And so we're not just relying upon the ISSs and the Glass-Lewises of the world to Make their make the decisions for uh, this giant swath of of investors. We're actually able to to have these open dialogues, and that, so that's new in the investor relations world, um, and certainly a, an opportunity to have more of a dialogue um, with folks. Yeah, absolutely, and so I think you know we one of the things that's what we wanted to really sort of have this you know as be part of this podcast today was to sort of clarify and hopefully, well, I don't know if we did or not, but you know, there's, there's ESG, there's corporate social responsibility, and there's just this, this, you know, alphabet soup that people come to us and they ask us these questions. So that's what was sort of driving uh, that dialogue uh, or this dialogue today, I should say. Um, you know, I'm going to kind of reach, I know we talked a little bit earlier, we had some couple of questions that have come on in. Um, and one of them has to do with last week's podcast, but I'm going to flip it around and kind of address a question that we got on, you know, some, we were asked what, what are some examples where companies, what can they do to raise their SPI score? And there's this sort of, you know, it suddenly became oh, SPI score is very important to me. And, you know, how can Intercom help? And generally for what I think this is actually referring to is the, uh, I guess, SPI being sustainability partners. So they've got a, a, a ranking system for ESG where they, or a rating system, I should say. I think it goes from like zero to a hundred, you know, zero, you're not messaging <laughs> well, you're not being accountable. And hundred, you're just amazing, right? And I, right. I think the, the context around this was uh, an article in Bloomberg where I guess Apple, you know, their number one, global brand, but I guess fell short on SPI's rating system. 
not not being transparent enough or not having the right outreach. Uh, and so suddenly this company is saying, hey, well, this is SPI is suddenly very important to me. And, uh, you know, what's this going to do to me and my messaging to investors, et cetera? Um, and, I, you know, I guess my take on it is there's, I wouldn't get right now yet, I mean, hung up on specifically SPI. And that's nothing against sustainability partners, but there are, what, how many other rating system, you know, platforms are out there? Well, this goes back to what we were kind of starting off is, is here's this intangible <laughs> element that's now taking a, a seat in the investment uh, decision. And we're trying to figure out ways to, to quantify it. And so we, we probably need to do that so that we can rank these things. And there's a lot of different rankings out there. I mean, I think ISS is, is coming to the table right. with their stuff. Uh, certainly SPI, but what can we do to help from our seat? It really is making sure that one, check yourself. Are you actually doing stuff? Exactly. And I think almost every company that I've ever worked with is like, yeah, we're doing things. Okay, great. We can check that box. Now two, tell someone about it. And so it, this is where. And that, that's exactly it because we always, you know, on, we, on our consulting business, you know, we, there's a part of our analytics where we say, don't have an opinion, have a number. But really, that's a that's just a part of it, and it's like we have to tell these guys, no, don't don't get hung up on meeting a, a number metric just for the sake of doing it. Right. What strategies can we bring to bear to really message out what you really are doing? And this is really comes to the core of of letting folks know who you guys are, what you value, and and making sure you put it in a. a platform that can be digestible. And so we saw uh, range with their sustainability report, new report out this oh, week. Oh yeah, yeah, the new CSR and, one. And, you know, it was well done. And so it's one of those, here's a great spot for us to be talking about it. We, we helped uh, a couple other clients on a presentation format. And these aren't meant to be overly burdensome necessarily, but a way for folks to internally check are we doing the things? And then convey out to other folks so that ranking systems or whatever it is can help quantify these for, for other folks. But again, uh, just like in our branding work that we do with clients, if you don't tell anyone, someone will make it up for you. Right. <laughs> and, uh, if you don't control your message, other yeah. people will. And so it that's made its way into ESG. Um, right on. So that's that's uh, that's the the kind of what we want to talk about on this one. Um, as we kind of wrap things up here, uh, took a look at the, uh, one of the questions that came in to the uh, Oil and Gas Podcast mailbox. How awesome is that? We're getting questions. Yeah, OG Podcast at com, And it really, this is actually probably a question more for our last guest, Tom Chikuri, um, but... Let me, let me just read this here. Uh, the question is, with the reduction in CapEx requirements for free cash flow, uh, the automation of the oil patch is critical. Uh, what percent of the oil patch has been automated with sensors and can take advantage of AI? And then the follow-on is, how can companies that are performing evaluations on M&A use AI to get a better and more accurate number? And I... I looked at that and I thought I 
have no idea what the percent of Oh man, I was, was going to be like, I'll take the second half, you take that one. Because <laughs> I don't know, but I, I know it's increasing. Uh, but right. that would be, I mean, it's a great number. Right. Well, right. I, I mean, if it's, gosh, is, is it offshore guys and all the sensors that are down at the BOPs that are predicting when parts are going to fail? Or is it, you know, gosh, well, that was such a broad, lengthy podcast last time. Uh, I, I, I actually, I just don't know if, if, if there is a good percentage number uh, to be had at this stage. Well, of the game. I think there's a lot of really good ideas on on spots where folks are going to try and add this automation that we're we're still in the early stages of, which also means that we have a lot more work to go do in the oil and gas space. Yeah, exactly. Now, as you, the second part of it being performing evaluations on M and A to use AI. Thoughts on that one? So these are my thoughts. I, I mean, AI uh, at the end of the day should give us better information. Right. And so if if we can effectively use AI to get a better understanding of the reservoir or get a better understanding of costs and, and opportunities around that, then the M&A space, that also plays into what we're willing to pay for it. And so if, if someone's got a better AI or if someone's got a, a unique advantage, they're willing to either one, pay more and, and win that bid and know with a little bit greater certainty where that cutoff is on economics. And so, you know, better information should give a little bit more comfort in the M&A space and, and potentially create more of an opportunity for arbitrage for, for folks that really feel strong about it. Yeah, and this really speaks towards some of the work that Tom was doing that he yeah. was referring to, so. And so he probably has a better answer than I do, but that, that's how <laughs> I, I think I could see it. Alrighty, All right, okay, so uh, I think this is gonna Wrap it up unless there's anything else that uh, you want to make mention of on ESG, CSR, SRI, or AI. Man, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I think we covered that pretty well. But uh, I'm excited to get questions, so uh, keep sending them in. Yes, and so for everyone who's uh, for doing so, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening to the Oil & Gas Podcast. And uh, until next time, uh, this is... Uh, Glenn and Aaron and Intercom, and we uh, will talk to you later. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Right on.